Hi, Interlibrary Loan listeners. This is Sky. Uh, we're very excited to get started on Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which will be our next novel. The first episode for that novel will drop in a week on February 23rd. Um, and if you want to read along with us, which we highly recommend that you do, um, we're going to be starting with um, the first three sections. This is uh, section one, night, section two, shopping, and section three, night, uh, from The Handmaid's Tale. If you're reading along with the Anchor Books edition paperback, um, like I am, that takes you to page 41. We'll be reading this book for six weeks, and uh, The Handmaid's Tale has been in the news recently for being the number one best-selling book on Amazon and elsewhere, and uh, it's sort of the book of the moment, so we really hope you'll uh, join along with us. Uh, thanks. On with the show. Today we're actually going to be talking about the movie that was based off of the book. The movie came out in 2012. Based on the book. Based on the book. Today we're going to... I'll start over again. <clears throat> Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan. Today is a special day as it is our final episode that is going to focus on Cloud Atlas. Today we're going to be talking about the 2012 movie based off of the book Cloud Atlas, which we have just spent the past 11 episodes reading through. Now, it's kind of an interesting movie because, I mean, not only is Cloud Atlas an interesting book and almost unfilmable in itself, but it was co-directed by the Wachowskis and the German director Tom Teichwer and has a whole host of weird stars who play multiple roles throughout everything. So before we get really started into talking all about that, uh, I'm John. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Welcome, Lauren. Yeah, Lauren is a, I mean, for today, she's a special guest. But as we discussed last week, I am going to be stepping out of the show for the next book because I need some time to recharge my batteries. So Lauren, how about you give us a quick introduction to yourself? Uh, hi, guys. My name's Lauren. I'm Sky's girlfriend and... But also very much her own person. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a wannabe literary critic like the rest of these guys, I suppose. Um, like Katie, I have a background in French literature and just want to have some fun talking about books. And that's and why we're case, here. Tom Hanks. And, <laughs> and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks in bad makeup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we are discussing, like I said, the movie version of Cloud Atlas. What an interesting, interesting movie. What an interesting movie indeed. And let me say, so I I did actually previously watch this movie. And by watch, I use that word uh, quite liberally because I actually fell asleep <laughs> while watching it. Not, not because the movie was particularly bad, just because it was one of those days where I'm pretty sure actually I watched it while I was in grad school. So... Um, I, it was a random one-off day that I didn't have anything to do, miraculously. So I decided to watch Cloud Atlas. And uh, I didn't start the movie until about 8.30. And this is a three-hour movie. And that's why I fell asleep. Uh, yeah. But as I was watching it this time around, the first thing that I began to think of was, what is this? what is it like to watch this movie without having read the novel first? To have... N no clue what's going on because I do recall I, I'm pretty sure I fell asleep very quickly in, into the beginning of the movie <laughs> but I do recall I had no idea what was going on for me I 
I, I also watched the movie before having read the book. I saw it in theaters on opening day because I'm a total stan for the Wachowskis. As Katie will tell you, I dragged her to Jupiter Ascending on opening day. And I loved it. Because it's an amazing movie. Yes. But, yes, I, I am 100% there for the Wachowskis. And I saw this movie opening day. I remember really liking it. And then it came out in October 2012. The following summer, I was backpacking through Europe and I randomly picked up like the movie edition of Cloud Atlas at an, a bookstore in Rome. They had like five books in their English language section. One of them was Vagina by Naomi Wolf. One of them was a series of essays by George Orwell. And one of them was a series, I mean, and one of them was Cloud Atlas. So I don't know who the hell picked this selection. But of those three, I'm like looking for an airplane novel. I'm not going to pick Naomi Wolf. I can pick George Orwell. So I picked up Cloud Atlas. And I ended up, you know, reading the book and it meant a whole lot to me. And I was like, wow, this is so dense. This is crazy. And on my flight back from Germany to New York, actually Cloud Atlas was one of the in-flight movie options. So I ended up watching it again shortly after having read the book and being really upset with the movie for the way that it had compressed mostly Sanmi's storyline. Yes. Mm-hmm. What, compressed, but also like totally made crap up that wasn't in the yeah, book. Yeah, they totally rewrote it. And in a bad way, it felt, it was, it felt so trivial compared to how interesting and detailed and thoughtful that that part of the book was. But I will say in having now watched it a third time, I mean, one, David Mitchell did collaborate with writing the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think he was I th- in the movie, too. And he liked yeah. the way it turned out. Like, he said he thought it was a good adaptation. And, and really, what I've felt now after watching the movie three times, reading the book twice, is that the book presents this narrative or this... Well, I mean, the book essentially is a... It's a series of philosophical statements about man's relationship to each other, all of you know, what we've talked about over the past 11 episodes with exploitation, with racism, with, you know, the way that it's, it's, there's always going to be a greater entity or force or organization against you. Like all of that is very rich in the book. That's not something you can, you can really render into the movie. What I do think having now watched the movie again, is that the movie does a really, really, really effective job at telling the story of the book, but focusing on the emotional unity rather than the causal or the philosophical unity. Yes, I would absolutely agree. But before we delve too much into uh, like bigger philosophical differences between the book and the movie, the f- one of the first things I thought of too was, so obviously this is like an all-star cast um, that's really pretty great. Uh, there's a lot of camp going on though, and... It, I found myself several times throughout the movie thinking, man, this is some great Wachowski's camp and you can absolutely see it. (laughs) Like this is right up the Wachowski alley. But um, the first thing I thought of was, so it's a, it's a a, a fitting choice, but also an intriguing choice um, to have these actors portraying different characters throughout each like soul comet story, as we've called them, I guess uh, in, in the book. And it got me thinking, like, so you see Tom Hanks as Henry Goose and as Zachary and as, like, the hotel manager. And so it was making me think, like, so 
what what are the connections between those characters and is it odd to see tom hanks as henry goose and as zachary mm-hmm. well not only that but the fact that they changed the like the birthmark yes and that was okay here's spoiler alert but at the end of the movie why did zachary have the comet mark why also, he was in space with old makeup Halle Berry, and they had space children. <laughs> yeah, what? yeah, that too. Yeah, what? Like, what? What is this? And they're the... adding like a whole other like narrative to the to the story. That's like this space Tom Hanks who's telling like telling the stories. Um, I did think that Tom Hanks like makeup and like whole deal in the. Um, in the Seleucia's Crossing portions of the film was maybe the best. Like, I think that worked really well. Yeah, it was pretty it great. It was, like, it was obviously Tom Hanks, but it, it didn't feel like Tom Hanks, right? Like, Tom Hanks wasn't really Tom Hanksing it up in this movie the way he usually does. Well, right. here's my favorite thing that they accomplished with all of the kind of cross-casting. Uh, ben Wishaw, who played Six Smith. No. No, Frobisher. No. Yes. Yeah, Frobisher. <laughs> if you're new to our podcast, I can never remember names. I have the Wikipedia um, article with, like, the complicated table that details what all the actors played in the different stories in front of me right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I kept looking back at, and forth at that when I was watching the movie. So, one, at the beginning, there's nothing more beautiful than naked Ben Wishaw erupting out of bed. <laughs> right. And if, if I had not woken up, literally, last night, we're recording on a Sunday, Last night was Saturday night. I like it's four a.m. I'm like getting home. I am. I ask Siri how long this movie is. Siri's like three hours. I'm like, dang it. Okay, so I have to wake up exactly on time to watch the movie before we record. And if that were not the case, I probably would have just freeze framed that scene and dreamed. No, he's a very, 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 very beautiful man. And James Darcy's not bad either. Yeah. Yes, but Ben Wish- Ben Wishaw is openly gay. So thank you very much. Anyway, he played Frobisher. And there was this weird bit where they had the main confrontation between Frobisher and Ares erupt, not out of jealousy. Well, I mean, yes, out of jealousy, but they Eva was not a character, so they kind of blended the Eva romance in with Ares instead. And so Frobisher maybe like maybe has yeah, a crush that was on a Ares, choice. or it, it just at one point like tries to kiss Ares basically. Yeah, oh, I thought Ayers, that was I thought that was like most analogous to the part where he prostitutes himself to Yanch, the book dealer. Like, I thought he was, like, doing that purely out of, um, like, to, to try to get something out of Ayers. Regardless, what I'm saying at this point is that Ben Wishaw was romancing a character played by Jim Broadbent. And then two stories later in, um, in Timothy Cavendish, Cavendish, it is implied that Cavendish sleeps with his brother's wife, Georgette, who is played by Ben Wishaw in, like, drag makeup. Right? So there's, like, there are these intra-causal, interesting causal links they make between the different characters by doing this kind of cross-casting. Yeah, what do we, what do we think of um, Hugo Weaving, James Darcy, and Ben Wishaw all playing, like, really unconvincing drag characters well, in the uh, Timothy Cavendish story? Yeah, so Hugo Weaving as Nurse Noakes... Uh, the only thing, as, as I was watching that, is I remember you, Sky, saying, like, when we were first introduced to Nurse Noakes, you were like, what does Noakes rhyme with? Smoke. <laughs> and so in the movie, we have Hugo Weaving playing both Bill Smoke and Nurse Noakes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. But whatever. I, 
I, I, I don't but also, know. this movie is way too crazy for any of this. <laughs> yeah. I honestly thought that Hugh Grant's portrayal as Cavendish's brother was the least convincing of all of the characters. Like, I felt like he looked like he was wearing a rubber mask on his face. It did not <laughs> look like he was actually an old dude. Yeah, it's weird how uneven the makeup is in this film. I think I, I, part of that is just because it's so, I mean, what they're trying to do is so ambitious. Part of it is because, you know, they were constantly facing problems with, like, budget and film. You know, this this um, film had a very troubled production history. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's really uneven. Some of the makeup looks great. Um, so, for instance, James Darcy as old Rufus Sixsmith, I think, is oh, very yeah. convincing. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic, but, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, when they slap Hugh Grant in, like, a rubber mask to play Jim Broadbent's <laughs> brother, it just, it looks silly. He's and got these, like, bags over his eyes, and it looks like, you, you know, you know that they're trying to make it look like he's just got, like, old, saggy eyes. But what it really looks like is, like, he's peeking his eyes out of this, like, really bad eye hole. And it's just, <laughs> it, it looks so fake. It's not, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it draws you oh. out of it. It. I mean, he's only in one scene, so there's that yeah. at least. But oh, the- he's 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 in the scene where he's like spraying down the porch, and then he's in the scene where he's in bed next to Ben Wishaw. Ben yeah. Wishaw, yeah. Well, and the more problematic makeup fiasco, obviously, is Jim Sturgis in the uh, in the yellow face. Son, yeah, and well, who well, else? And James Let's Darcy. Uh, oh, I, James I thought Darcy they were just trying to make him look like uh, look like Neo from the Matrix. And <laughs> also, and Duna Bay as the Mexican woman in the Luisa Ray story was awful. Yeah, no, no, no. Duna Bay as Tilda was awful. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what contacts they were using, but they got them like at the dollar store. Yeah. So and um, and and while I get what they were doing, obviously it just it, there was no way that it was not going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. Well, and I actually talked to my friend about this the other day. Um, she's Chinese American, and we had kind of been talking about Tilda Swinton and the whole Doctor Strange fiasco. And, you know, then I brought this movie up because we were going to be discussing it. And I wanted to know her perspective on, like, is there a way to do this that is not going to be, in a lot of ways, fundamentally racist? And I think. She brought up a really valid point, which is actors. I mean, the job of an actor is to, you know, portray, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why you could not have portrayed the links between these characters using different actors who have s- similar mannerisms. Mm-hmm. Right. Know? And I don't know if you've seen Moonlight yet, but like Moonlight tells the story of one man through three different periods of his life using three different actors, but the actors all model their performance off of each other in such a way that they really like, there's no question that this is the same person. Right. And that's something that the novel of Clad Atlas does, right? It's not like when we, other than the comet birthmark, which is, you know, it only comes up about once every story. All of the characters are obviously different people, right? They're not being portrayed by the same actor in the novel. And, but we see the parallels in what they do and what they say and what happens to them. That's how the parallels are expressed in the novel. But they make it m- much more concrete and literal in the film. Right. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a lot of this, though, is because of the Wachowskis bringing in a lot of this kind of like woo-woo, new-agey stuff and really playing up the reincarnation, yeah, I mean, karma stuff. At one point, stuff. they talk about Carlos Castaneda. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's that scene. That's the scene where Tom Hanks and Halle Berry are talking to each other on the oh, Swanicky yeah. reactor. As, as Isaac Sachs and Louisa Ray. Yeah. 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 The that, second you bring was, in Carlos Castaneda, you get woo woo new agey. And that was yeah. the scene in which Tom Hanks was being his most Tom Hanksiest. Yeah. Which was kind of delightful, but also like that scene was like for the purposes of the film, I thought really fell flat. I know Sky hasn't seen this, but I don't know if John and Katie, if either of you have seen the newest big Wachowski production on Netflix, which is Sensei. Oh, it's yes. Like so yeah. I kept thinking throughout seeing this again, since I haven't seen this movie since like 2012 when it came out, I kept thinking over and over that this was kind of an a natural progression from The Matrix to Sensei, that it really it made sense within the Wachowski universe. And I'm not sure that I liked it because of that. Like, and part of me was like, I don't know that this really does the novel service, that it's really kind of playing up this kind of matrixy, otherworldly, spiritual, but. I mean, one, I I see where you're coming from, but it's not just a Wachowski film. It's also a Tom Tykver film. Mm Mm-hmm. And unlike V for Vendetta, which the Wachowskis only produced and did not really direct themselves, yeah, like Alan Moore has nothing to do with adaptations of his his film. But David Mitchell was, or his his books. But David Mitchell was directly involved in this adaptation. So you yeah. had the Wachowskis plus David Mitchell plus Tom Tykfer, who are all producing a much more complex work. You know, they're all putting elements of themselves into it. Mm-hmm. So Tom Tykfer's probably his famous film is. Um, Run Lola Run, that German movie about. Oh yeah, that's a very famous movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he also directed Perfume, Story of a Murderer, starring Ben Wishaw, which is a really genuinely fantastic movie. You should watch. Um, so I, I I agree with you, Lauren, in that like, in the grander sense of the weird Wachowski in universe, mm-hmm. this movie doesn't slot in. But if you look at it, they the Wachowskis directed three segments, and Tom Tykfer directed three segments. The okay. Wachowski segments are. The Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. Okay. An Horizon of Sonmi 451. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. Sluc- that makes and Slucius sense. Cross and an Everything After. Okay. So if you look at those three segments as a Wachowski movie and the other three segments as a Tom Tykfer movie, like at that point oh, yeah. you really that start to sense. see it yeah. fit in with an And and that's that's why that's another question I asked is does this movie seem like it's suffering from multiple personality disorder, which is a, you know, n- a- apart from the the format that it's already got that it's based off of. But just, I don't know. Well, so to that end, let's talk about the format of this movie. Or, the, or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. Or lack thereof. <laughs> the, the, book, the book is the Matryoshka doll right. you know, series. The movie starts with kind of in media res moments from each story and then kind of flashes back to the beginning and intercuts freely between the individual stories. Now, what I said at the beginning is that I think that this movie does not do a good job explaining kind of the causal and philosophical complexity of the book, but I think it is very emotionally successful. Yeah. And I think that's what this this kind of construction allows them to do because they overlay successes with each other. I mean, they overlay successful moments with each other. For instance, the amazing, amazing, amazing scene in the Cavendish storyline where they are at the bar and they start the fight. Oh, because, yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, like that is overlaid with another successful moment in, you know, in other stories. I don't remember specifically right now what 
what's what going it is, on, but like, yeah. that's like the high beat of the film. And then like after that, you get the bit where Frobisher kills himself, and that part has me just fucking sobbing. I think it is so beautifully handled in the movie, and it just makes me cry so much. And that's overlaid with the bit when Zachary finds out that his village has been raided and everybody has died except for Katkin. And, you know, like, I think based on the narrative constraints of a movie, it works. The only other way that you could do this, the only way that you could make Cloud Atlas function with the original kind of narrative is if you did a, you know, like a Netflix series, basically. It would be like half Sense8 and half Black Mirror. Well, and this is what I, I sort of posited this before we watched the movie. And then after the movie, I was like really convinced um, is that like it's really a shame that this was adapted in 2012 because it was sort of just before the point where you could have made a like prestige television, Netflix, Hulu, 12 part, 12 hour miniseries of this, which would have been so cool. And I mean, maybe that'll happen someday. That would be awesome. Like, I feel like that would really do the novel justice in a way that this three-hour adaptation could not. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I also feel the same way about Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Harry Potter as like a, as like a, a television series, series yeah. where each book was like one season. That would be f- amazing. Basically, imagine if instead of getting Game of Thrones, we got Harry Potter. Oh, that'd be so cool, dude. That's that's <laughs> that's what we truly deserve. The other way I could see this working more coherently as like a um, because I think you're right, John. I think like it it cr- it conveys the emotions of Cloud Atlas and it conveys the action of Cloud Atlas, but it doesn't really get the 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 the, the philosophical and rhetorical points of Cloud Atlas don't shine through. And I feel like if you were going to do that, you would need to strip it down more, almost to like a stage play. Where you could still have, you know, oh Tom Hanks God. and Harry Halle Berry and whatever repeating their roles, but you don't do the makeup, you don't do oh the special effects, you don't do the action scenes. You said stage play, and the first thing I thought was, um, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, he wrote Death of a Salesman. No, not Death Arthur of Miller. No, not, not Arthur, Arthur Miller. Miller. The other guy, he's Irish. Martin um, McDonough. The Iceman cometh. Oh, um, Eugene O'Neill. Yes. I thought Eugene O'Neill, I don't know if you've ever seen a Eugene O'Neill play, but it is the most brutal, brutal onslaught that you will ever sit through in your entire life. Yeah, that would be cool. They could do a great adaptation of Cloud Atlas like that, but it would be very different from this one. This one is, I mean, I I wanted to ask you guys how you felt this compared as an adaptation to to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films as adaptations of their respective works. I actually had a thought about that myself, Katie. Um, the bit when when Miranem brings out the rope and Zachary's like, I don't need no smart rope. I was thinking back to when <laughs> yeah. when Sam, Sam got the rope, rope from the elves. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in a lot of ways they're trying to do the same thing that Peter Jackson tried to do with the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is take an incredibly narratively complex story and tell it in a way that is true to kind of the emotional and spiritual beats, but not necessarily true to all of the narrative beats. The true true ain't the semen true. Yeah. I I, 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 want, I I will say at one point, I really wanted one character to yell, you can't handle the true true. <laughs> um, well, but this is the thing, as opposed to like The Hobbit, which I feel like, like my, I felt that like this was a good adaptation of the source material in the same way that like the Lord of the Rings films are good adaptations of the source material and the same way that I, I think personally that the Hobbit films are a poor adaptation of the source material. Yep, in that right on. It, like, 
yeah, I mean, they, you know, this movie explains the, or like, gives the concrete story of Cloud Atlas and explains why Cloud Atlas is cool, but it can't sort of even begin to really get into the details of what makes Cloud Atlas a, a good novel. And I think that is for the same reason as I have said with the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, it's, it's, it's just a failure of what we miss from reading it on the page. Well, I was telling Sky, I felt like I was watching a three-hour-long preview of the book. Yeah. It felt like you weren't ever deep into these worlds. And because of that, you couldn't really, like, people talk about TV series and movies sometimes existing in a universe of your own, and it's kind of nice just to be in these uni- like in these universes. But I kind of felt like with Cloud Atlas, it was just like you were constantly flipping between the two, and you could never really get immersed in any of them. And it never felt fulfilling in that way that like sitting and watching like an episode of Star Trek does, you know, where you're like sitting in and like really getting into what's going on. Mm-hmm. The well, cuts make it that way. I-, I wonder if you could cut recut this film to tell the stories in the same like way that they're told in the novel and what that would look like and feel like. Kind of like that Hobbit movie cut that compresses them all down into... Yeah, I have that mm-hmm. downloaded on my laptop, and I'm, I'm excited to watch that at some point. I mean, point. I think maybe, but you would suffer because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be getting the emotional beats like off of the other stories. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's what makes this film ultimately work when it works. Yeah, is that I, kind of cross emotional beats? It's almost like within the book, you know, Frobisher says that he's writing a tone poem, the Cloud Atlas sextet, and like this, the sextet that he writes, the piece of music is not going to contain the narrative complexities of a story. You can't do that with a tone poem. What a tone poem does, that is, I mean, it establishes tone. It is about this kind of feeling, this quality that you can only send through music. And I feel like to that end, this movie is almost it's almost like you could rewrite Cloud Atlas to have Timothy Cavendish be writing a screenplay that was the Cloud Atlas movie. Mm -hmm. You know, like the movie is a tone poem for the book because it at least for me, I feel like it kind of adds to the book in a way. I you know, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy in, in places that I did not feel, but it does not replace it and it does not do the job that the book does. Yeah, and I mean we've been I mean we've been talking a lot of smack about the Cloud Atlas film, but there's a lot of stuff that it does correctly and it's also a staggeringly ambitious project. Like it, yes. the fact that they even attempted to do this yeah. is amazing. Well, and nobody would fund them, so they funded themselves and they like Well, the the German government or the German film board was the was the largest uh backer. I yeah, and Timothy Cavendish portion was was especially well done and that like that was genuinely entertaining and enjoyable in a way that for example the like Sony 451 section was like felt like a shadow of the of the oh the yeah initial right I think we can all agree that the Sony storyline suffered the most it did and yeah. for, for me I would agree that Timothy Cavendish felt spot on the tone of it felt spot on and Jim Jim Broadbent is <laughs> Inspired. I know, I know. Yeah, perfect and fantastic as he always is. But another uh, big success, I think, was Louisa Ray in a lot of a lot of parts. There were, I I I felt the tone was correct. I I don't know that like the cinematography and there's mm-hmm. even a little jab. Like you can you can see David Mitchell throughout this movie a little bit. Like Javier makes a makes a a joke about um, 
you know, good mystery writing or something within the Louisa Ray story, which is clearly well, a jab at. Yeah. So but this could be a book. So, but did you guys catch that the film corrected one of what I thought at least was the largest problems with the novel? So in the novel, one of my largest problems with the novel, um, and I don't know if this is an oversight on David Mitchell's part or if he did this intentionally to make the, the novel feel sort of like more untidy and more indiscreet, was that in every passage, you know, in every section of the novel, we understand how like the the sort of reality in which the next section relates to the previous section, except for there's this breakdown between Louisa Ray and Timothy Cavendish, where Timothy Cavendish is reading Louisa Ray, and we also read Louisa Ray as a work of fiction that is clearly like stylized. But and in there's the movie, no indication that 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 it is in the novel. There's no indication that Louisa Ray's story and by association the previous two stories are real in any way. But in right. the movie, they make Javier the author of the yeah. Louisa Ray manuscript, which gives a sort of like direct link between the Louisa Ray story and the Cavendish story. Mm-hmm. But then does nothing. Good choice. But then does nothing to explain how Louisa and Timothy could have been alive at the same time. What? No, they weren't alive. Oh, uh, oh, I guess that is so. If you're if you're assuming that they're like directly like direct reincarnations of like you could have this like parallel souls theory where they're like living different lives simultaneously at some times, but in particular because in the novel at least there are several instances where a character like dreams or sees something before like in their next life so Mm -hmm. there's the question of is linear versus cyclical time Mm -hmm. uh, well travel i guess of these reincarnations so you know the the, i also thought katie that the louisa ray story was particularly well done it um you know in the novel it's this really over the top like pulp thriller novel Mm -hmm. and they adapted it basically as like a black exploitation film like we've got uh keith david as joe napier in i thought his performance in this section was particularly good um it really works as this like super stylized san francisco that's very different from how it's written in the novel but i think they they sort of stylize it to the same degree and it really like popped for me well because the movie is using as its primary reference dirty harry that's right which is alluded to several times in the novel yeah but like you know the novel is trying to be a 70s pulp novel whereas the movie rather than trying to be like a filmed 70s pulp novel is trying to be this the literal equivalent which is just dirty harry which i think is a really great you know point also, one thing, did you guys notice the change that, that they made to Letters from Zettelgem other than the whole Eva not even being a character? Uh, there's lots uh, of changes. It takes place in Edinburgh rather than Belgium. Did you know it's, why it takes place in Edinburgh? No. The nursing home is in the chateau. Ah. So it's like the same, like that weird it, like castle house thing? Yeah, it's the same building. Like, after Ayers died, the building was turned into the nursing home or something. In 2012, filming... I don't know how much this would have affected the film industry, but wasn't Belgium, like, without a government for a few years around, like, in the mid... Like, around that time? So, I I don't know. Maybe they, they would have had difficulty, like jumping around or maybe it was just like expedience it was easy no i mean it it probably served a great narrative convenience for them yeah but i also feel i mean not narrative convenience um 
business community. Filming, uh, filming, filming. Commu- yeah. Yes. But I also think that they were able to use that for a great narrative end. Because yeah. then the train that Frobisher rides up, you know, to, to meet heirs is the same, same train like, yeah. that Jim, you know, that uh, Cavendish rides yeah. to end up at this hellhole. And in a, you know, a certain way, they both feel really trapped at this, mm-hmm. at this building. Yeah, so, and Ca- Cavendish remarks on feeling as though he'd been there before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, the Neo-Soul section, I think, really, it's not like they cut a lot, or they cut a lot out, but then they replaced it with a lot of these, like, big action set pieces, which I think really didn't serve the, the film. Um, but with the Frobisher section, I thought that section sort of worked in the film, but they cut so much out. They really stripped down that story mm-hmm. to its bare pieces. And yet, I thought it worked. I thought it worked pretty well. But oh. I think they really they, they stripped every story down. They had to. They they had to. There were yeah, there was no way to make it any shorter than three hours without removing quite a bit. Um but they made Jacesta Ayers so like so uninteresting in that section too. She was just kind of like a like a skeleton. Right, and they make Ben Wushaw as Robert Frobisher sort of not interested in, in Jocasta Ayers at all either. Like in the novel it's clear that he is very excited to be in bed with Jocasta Ayers at the at the beginning of the section, um, and then you know gradually loses interest. But in the movie, it's played like he's just sort of doing this as part of his professional obligations to Ayers, or as a way to get closer to Ayers. Right? He talks about them like him, like Ayers being between or being between Vivian being between them. Mm-hmm. Like in the novel, it's kind of obvious that he's bisexual, but I think they make a a choice to make Frobisher just gay I th- well no I, th- I think in the novel he's pansexual okay we've yeah. discussed him as wanting to hump everything that moves yeah more or less yes and I but I agree with you like in the movie he's explicitly gay also uh okay I was having a difficult time with this Frobisher does not shoot airs in the book does he no oh, no yeah yeah that part was weird yeah he has the desire to cut airs throat exactly but, but then but, but what I, but then he feels what, that he shouldn't what I think they did this four though is it's a lot easier of a way to explain why Frobisher would have committed suicide. Right, I it g- gives I a guess. sense of urgency to the story that without the Eva subplot, there is no urgency for him yeah. to mm-hmm. either skip town, kill himself, whatever. So if you have to kind of narratively com- compress that, you know, this is I think an effective way to have done that. Yeah, they could have oh. had Duna Bay play, um, play. The, the Belgian play, policeman? N- no, oh, play Eva. Eva. In, instead of the Belgian police. No, she didn't play the Belgian policeman. <laughs> well, but but they... Tom Hanks would have made a good Belgian policeman. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. He's the weird hotel manager who's yeah. eyeing his vest. Yeah. That scene is great where, they ha- where like, uh, James Darcy as Sixsmith shows up and the hotel manager is wearing his vest. Yeah. And he just yes. looks at it and he's like, oh, shit, this is worse than I thought. Yeah. Speaking of... Waistcoats. No, um, there's the bit where you know Henry Goose snaps, snips off the buttons from Ewing, yeah. uh-huh. and then like 600 years later, Zachary finds one of the buttons and like makes a necklace out of it. Yeah, that was kind of nice. But that, yeah. but that was another moment. So nearing the conclusion of the Ewing story, um, Goose is doing his creepy bad bond villain moment where he's you know telling ewing his grand plot to kill him as he's thinking that he's going to do him in and autoa comes to the rescue but then goose like has a stranglehold on autoa and it's ewing who manages to like get this super superhuman mustering of strength and 
hit Goose upside the head with the the chest of gold, which, while I may say that's pretty great, um, it, 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 it lost something important well, because Altua also, was the, the real hero in that moment. It's not a chest of gold. It's just a chest of documents. Well, but it and, had... And, Oh, that's right. No, in in the film, it has a bunch of like golden stuff in it, which is a pretty great symbolic act. You know, hitting him over the head with the thing that he's been yeah. lusting over the entire film. But it also yeah. sets up. I mean, they really changed the stakes for the Adam Ewing story because in the in in the film, they have him instead of sort of just carrying around a bunch of like legal documents, they have him carrying around like actual gold and stuff, presumably in the service of his father-in-law. And then there's well, this no, scene. But- that, they explicitly state what it is that he's doing in the movie, which they don't in the book. Oh, I didn't catch and, that. What is he doing? Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. Is like in the book, he is carrying the papers related to an estate. Mm-hmm. We don't really know anything beyond that. We know that his father-in-law would scoff at the idea of being an abolitionist, but we don't know really anything why. Yeah, they don't in seem the, to be in business together necessarily. In, in, in the movie, he's explicitly carrying a s- contract for the trading of slaves. Mm. Right, yeah. yeah. So and that's why at the end he throws it into the fire because, you right. know. Right. So there's this scene which, like, I think they, there could have been a version of this scene that really worked, but I thought this scene did not really work as that the, almost the conclusion of the film. Which and Adam, Adam Ewing returns and Hugo Weaving plays his father-in-law and Duna Bay in very unconvincing makeup plays, his, plays Tilda. Yes. And um, all of that... That passage at the end, I mean, we talked about this last week. That passage at the end of Cloud Atlas is a mic drop passage. Like, yes. that is, that, and he, it, this is almost like, like David Mitchell speaking to you, the reader. Like, it's almost like the, it's very much a sort of like summation of the novel philosophically and a sort of like call to action to the reader. It real. they actually have this scene play out where his father in law confronts him. And and he's defiant, and I thought that really actually like cheapened a lot of the strength of that passage in the book because it it's it's like this weird action sequence like piece where the characters are really interacting, so it doesn't have that kind of like mic drop element, and then it definitely doesn't have the mic drop because after that it cuts to space Tom Hanks and space old makeup Halle Berry <laughs> with all the like space children gathered around to listen to him talk yeah. about like old earth after radioactive holocaust i mean i kind of like that part as it's like like at on its own terms i kind of like the space children and everything i didn't think that was terrible but narratively it was weird well Well, and the movie the movie bookends with both zachary's like yes the the first scene and the last scene are zachary which is the exact opposite of the book in which the Mm -hmm. first scene and the last scene are adam Mm -hmm. right um, and and I think as you were saying, I think what what was preserved from the Ewing conclusion, what was preserved was Ewing's resolve to to join the abolitionist cause. That, that that's great, and the the uh, what is any ocean but a multitude of drops. That's an, another kind of big point of of the story. But yeah, it completely loses which i think is the recurring theme that we've discussed it loses the the greater philosophical points yeah and i think like one thing that i was impressed about with this film was so many i mean we've david mitchell is sometimes an epigrammatic writer he writes these great one-liners and and sort of think think 
thinker sentences, and so many of them were used verbatim in the movie, and I thought that was good. I yes. liked that they did that. Yes. Um, so that was something I thought the movie really did right, was they captured so many of like the, the sort of money quotes from the novel. Sky, one of the things you talked about, like, we kind of, like, we kind of, like, debriefed a little bit after watching the movie with with Sky's parents. And one of the things that, that, that we talked about was the fact that tonally, like, the movie changed the linear ending of the novel, which was a little bit pessimistic, mm-hmm. right? So there's this, uh, the end of the Zachary story is a little bit it's ambiguous. Bleak. It's bleak. You don't know what's going to happen, and, the, and it doesn't look great, right? And so the end of the, the end of the, um, the Adam Ewing section is supposed to kind of inspire this idea of doing good and, it, and doing the right thing, despite the fact that it may all be in vain, in the end, but just because the pursuit of good and justice is worth it, but the but the movie makes everything tied up neatly in a nice little bow that like eventually humans escape the like horrors of Earth in a way that the book doesn't really make clear, and that kind of for me that cheapens it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I I would agree because at the end of Zachary in the book we get. You know, hold out your hand, take this. Now you do with it what you will. And we don't get that. There's not a call to action in the movie that we have in the book. I think that's a that's a big loss. Um, because we do have this nice, happy ending with Grampy Zachary and, and Old Space Halle Berry. That's, that's the name of my... That's the name of my neo-industrial glam band. It's Old Spice Halle Berry. <laughs> well, okay, so there's something I need to talk about, which we have not yet. Why is Susan Sarandon in this movie? Why oh, yeah, thank you. Susan Sarandon in this movie. It's because she was perfect as the abbess. Well, it's because she was in Speed Racer and she had like a relationship with the Wachowskis. I mean, but that's it's just, true. It's just weird to have a name as big as Susan Sarandon in this movie. And Doing who does she so play? Little. She plays Horrocks's wife in one scene. With a really awful like abbess. prosthetic nose. Yeah, with she weird pl- prosthetic makeup. Yeah, she plays... Um, Ursula. O- older Ursula. Ursula, yeah. In the and Timothy my Cavendish favorite, story. in the Sanvi storyline, there's a bit where Sanvi is like viewing videos and just like learning everything. And she becomes obsessed with Solzhenitsyn, and Susan Sarandon plays Solzhenitsyn. That's right! That's right! Yeah, the cast in this movie is interesting. They, like, you know, they have the the six actors who play the sort of primary characters in each story, and then they have, like, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, Susan Sarandon, and Keith David. Those are four, like, big-name big actors as people who don't play any of the main characters. And I feel like Hugo, uh, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, and Keith David are used to, like, good ends, but Susan Sarandon is, like, like woefully underused in this movie. She does a... The, the Abbess is, le- like, like, legitimately entertaining. Like, she does a really good job as the Abbess. But as older Ursula, I'm just thinking of... She looks like Susan Sarandon in... Uh, did, I, did any of you guys see Stepmom? Like, I yes. just kept having flashbacks to the 90s with Susan Sarandon so, and Stepmom. Um, Lauren, a fun, fun, fun throwback to my relationship with Katie. 
Um, <laughs> it began like in I was in ninth grade. She was in eleventh grade, I think. I think. But really, what was solidified it was the fact that through a like six hundred comment thread on a live journal post, <laughs> we both talked about our crush on Liam Aiken, who played the son from Stepmom and who had most recently appeared in the movie version of a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> oh. I have never seen Stepmom, I'm sorry. It's not a great movie. It's not a good movie. Susan Sarandon tangent, but <laughs> what I do find interesting though about this like side casting is Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving, and it's hard trying to go back and forth saying Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, mm-hmm. Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the only two people who, like, every character they play is evil. Yes, that's something that um, that I noted. Uh, because because for me, with with the main cast, the, I, I think the most jarring thing for me was to uh, was Tom Hanks. So you have Tom Hanks as Henry Goose, um, Dermot Hoggins, uh, <laughs> Isaac Sachs. Isaac Sachs, but I mean Isaac Sachs is a good guy. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, uh, and he, and and Zachary. So it's it's this weird feeling that you have seeing. I mean, you know, and and not to say that these characters are linked together, but they're but but you can't help but feel. See, Hugo Weaving felt more sinister to me than Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant felt like kind of neutral, especially when he's playing like. He was playing the the seer who's like interrogating Sonmi four five one. No, he he's no, he's, he's not the seer. He's the he's the guy who he's the like overseer. kills himself. The overseer. Yeah. The yeah. interrogator. Oh, right, right. Okay. The, the archivist is James Darcy. Is James yeah. Darcy? Oh, yeah. all right, my bad. Which and that too, to me, there was this great moment when it, and, it, and it, it was it was like right after Frobisher kills himself in the movie and um. Uh, the archivist who is played by James Darcy asks Sonmi451, do you still love him? And speaking of Heiju In, oh, or I guess yeah. Heiju Chang in the movie. And I was like, okay, that is a clear, like to me, connect. Like this is Six Myth. <laughs> yeah. As archivist. Also, Lauren, when you just said like, you can't fully see Hugh Grant as a bad character. Yeah. I just had a flashback to Bridget Jones. <laughs> and now I'm trying to like headcanon Colin Firth into this movie in some way. Oh. <laughs> um I, I, I like in the Neo Soul section, I think the love story between Sanmi four five one and Haiju Chang is maybe the worst part of the entire oh, movie. God. It was so unnecessary and it's such a like perversion of how that handled it's like Part of the Sanmi four five one story in the novel is that like eventually Haiju Chang and Sanmi four five one do like have sex and like develop a little like it's not clear how much of a romantic interest they had in one another, but um but that that's like discussed so like matter of factly in the novel and yeah. they make it this like Hollywood love story which really sucks and the and sex it's... scene just felt gratuitous and like totally unnecessary it yeah was... I wanted a sex scene between Ben Wishaw and James Darcy where was that <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> like that would have been so much more compelling and thematically relevant to the film and they had so much like they had so much more chemistry than than like than than Jim Sturgis and Duna Bay did yeah I mean, and and that I mean that was as you said Sky. that was uh like a distant distant second to the main like interaction between these two characters and in the story 
So it was disappointing that it made such a prominent part of the Sanmi story in the movie. Well, and especially because in this film, Haiju Chang is more like a Neo or like James Bond character than like he is in the novel. It's like, it's, you can't even feel good for Sunmi 451 for, like, getting some because, like, it's weird and creepy. Like, she's got, like, Stockholm Syndrome. This yeah. dude, like, rescued her. Yeah. And, like, it's, yeah, it was just weird. Yeah. Because, and that's the that's the other thing about this section is that the in, the archivist keeps saying to Sunmi 451, like, hey, why'd you do this thing? And Sunmi 451 just keeps going, like, I don't know. Haiju Chang was, like, the only person who I, like, who had ever, like, paid attention to me. So I just did whatever he wanted me to. I felt like Duna Bay was really underused because she's like, I think she's a much better actress than what they, I've seen her in a lot of other things, and I think she has a lot more potential than what they gave her to work with. Well, I mean, if you watch the rest of the Wachowski canon after this movie, they clearly feel the same way that you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, if you've if you've seen Sense8, Duna Bay is great in Sense8. Oh, she kicks so much ass. Yeah. I do think, though, that th- there are still, f- for all that the Sanmi story falls flat and misses some really important stuff in the movie, um, her, like, declarations at the end are, are pretty effective, mostly because of the way that they're intercut with the other stories, I feel. But, um, but still, at least we had that. Yeah, I, like, I, th- I actually thought the cuts worked really well in the movie like they there were very few times where I'm like huh I wonder what's going on in this other story right now like they really did a good job of like linking the stories through the cuts in ways that made sense the other thing is like we were watching this film with my parents who had not read the novel and (laughs) uh and they were like they weren't they honestly weren't into the film but they it's it's not like they couldn't follow it like they understood what was going on the whole time it's not like so, the time i showed my mom the departed and she thought matt damon and ben or um leonardo dicaprio were the same character right yeah it's it's not that so i mean like the film did a good job at clearing the relatively high hurdle of making it like make sense to the viewer but but your dad at the end of it was basically like, okay, so the point of the film is like, do good no matter what. He just kind of like. But that's like a philosophical thing. Like the the literal narrative, I don't think anyone had trouble following. I remember when the first time I saw this film, I remember being impressed. And this was before, I saw the film before I read the the novel, and I remember being kind of I remember being impressed and trying and wanting to know more about these stories but after like having read the the novel and coming back and watching the film again several years later I I'm just not as blown away as I was the first time and it honestly just doesn't seem like it's as good as a, of a movie as I thought it was the first time I saw it maybe they'll make a Netflix series that would be <laughs> awesome I you know, I, this this movie could have been a lot worse, right? Like, yeah. I could imagine adaptations of Cloud Atlas that are, like, unwatchable. And this movie, like, it was complete. It felt coherent. It felt like a, like, reasonably good adaptation of the source material. But I don't know if I would call it a good movie as a movie, you know? Especially if you haven't already read the novel. Yeah. I think, I think that you would find the movie richer after having read it. Yeah, I I think it's kind of a case like if you're going to make a movie out of Cloud Atlas, this is probably the best movie that you could get out of it. Right. Certainly, like a theatrically released like two two to three hour film. I think this yeah. may be the best you're going to be able to do. 
Yeah. Well, let's uh, keep our fingers crossed for the 12-part Cloud Atlas miniseries and the <laughs> seven-season Harry Potter TV show. Awesome. I mean, like, when, when we're in this era of weird TV with things like Sensei and the OA and all this other stuff, like 3% that's on Netflix, surely they could find a Surely they could of, find it in of, their hearts. Uh, to, to do Cloud Atlas. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can get them to reboot Wishbone and it'll be Wishbone Does Cloud Atlas. <laughs> can, oh. can we make a fan film that's just Wishbone Does Cloud Atlas where we cut scenes from Cloud Atlas with like scenes that we've redubbed from Wishbone? And like superimpose Wishbone into the Cloud Atlas film? And please, please, no, I was going to say Wishbone just plays all of the Comet Souls. That's what this I was going to say. This would be yeah. so great. But guys, oh, we could do this. Like we, we don't even have to have a budget. All we have to do, ha- do is get like iMovie and like... You know, a Jack uh, Russell well, Terrier. Thanks, thanks to our Patreon <laughs> subscribers, we have Adobe Premiere Pro. So. There you go. So we're we're set to go. Uh, dear readers, look out for our cut of Wishbone Does Cloud Atlas in a couple of months. <laughs> see, I've always wanted a Wishbone version of Anna Karenina. Oh, John, I want to see always the dog. Anna Karenina, isn't I want to see the dog jump under the train. What? That's that's terrible. It's also, spoiler alert: that? if you've never read that 150-year-old novel. Well, maybe we could have Wishbone do, do Candide, and then I could read Candide. And yeah, we could wait. Talk I, about so it. I didn't read a lot of Wish, or I didn't watch a lot of Wishbone as a child. But does like, like you know, he he does the classics of literature, but the classics of literature have a lot of bummers. Does he ever do bummers? He did, like they do Oliver Twist and Oliver done... Twist is not a bummer. Okay. Oliver Twist has a relatively happy ending. There's the Prince and the Pauper. There's a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Now, those are all not bummers. They do he the does Odyssey. He, he, he does Robin Hood. No, also these are not all, really these all have happy endings. I okay, maybe they just didn't do any bummers. I mean, it's for children. Yeah, children, children in the nineties. Children need bummers, and it was a half-hour series. Children need half-hour bummers. Yeah, okay, <laughs> probably not a lot of wishbone bummers. Um, Let's see. Oh, there's a Joan of Arc episode. Okay, that one's kind of a bummer. That's, yeah, right? that's a bummer. But wait, who does Wishbone play in that? Wishbone is clearly a male donkey, right? Does he? Oh. Does he? Does and I'm looking up. I'm looking this up on Wikipedia I don't know how right clearly now. He's a there's a Romeo and Juliet episode. There's an, uh, an Odyssey episode. Yeah, the Odyssey episode was pretty great with Wishbone. They do a Cyrano de Bergerac episode. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, so Romeo and Juliet has a tragic ending. Um, do they have Do they have him drink poison, like lap it up like a dog? Because that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> I don't know. But what I will say is that I've always wanted to open. A restaurant called Cyrano de Burger Shack. <laughs> what? They did a Faust episode? Oh, wow. A Faust episode would be fun. Can we watch the Wishbone Faust episode? All right. This has just become a Wishbone fan cast. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Interlibrary Alone is now just a Wishbone fan cast. Do you even watch Wishbone? <laughs> no, but I'm Interlibrary so Alone, so. more like Interlibrary Bone. Oh. Ba-dum-bum. But you don't but, have to take but, my word for it. But at Cyrano de Burger Shack, you always have to place your order by whispering it to somebody from off stage. And then once you're done, you say, and then once you're done, you say, "My panache." Apparently, they did a wishbone version of the Metamorphosis. Whoa! All I can imagine is Wait, that wishbone did, turns into a human in that version. I don't I, know. I like to imagine that they dressed wishbone up in a dog costume shaped like a cockroach because that would be amazing. There was a wishbone version of Rumpelstiltskin that was pretty good. <laughs> Holy shit. They did a version of Monkey Journey to the West for Wishbone. No way. Called Barking at like, Buddha. 
Is this like weird Latter Day Wishbone that was like made long after we were? Oh in my the god, you guys, you guys! There is a Wishbone episode that is an interpretation of Northanger Abbey entitled "Pup Fiction." <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> Wait, right. so like, how many Wishbone dogs were there? Did they have like know, twelve yeah, dogs is, to play Wishbone? This is turning into a side yeah, project. Yeah, guys, is there, the is there even a dog in Cloud Atlas? We gotta like. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. There's the dog that uh, that um, Hugo Weaving that, shoots in the yeah. Louisa Ray section. Oh, that's right. And then the Mexican woman is like, like comes back and like it's like the really bad Duna Bay like trying to speak Spanish and mm-hmm. talking about like don't talk touch my dog and like broken Spanish. And it's like guys, if you're making a movie for the like American populace, like a lot of people speak Spanish. You got to get someone you, who actually knows what they're your doing. Spanish game. Like have so have bad. Duna Bay be like dubbed or something. Like that would be fine. They used to do that in movies all the time. Oh uh, well. I feel like we should wrap this up before we talk about Wishbone for another half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I bring on the Wishbone. ILL is now just Wishbone we cast. We can just make like a side I really, I really cast. want to c- try to cut a like Wishbone Cloud Atlas episode. I think that would be, that would be so Christ. doable. We could do like, you could like do the superimpose the Cloud at- Atlas sextet over like the Wishbone intro music and kind of try to have this like. <laughs> Oh, that that was one last uh, oh, yeah, we should que- talk about question. The soundtrack. One last question I had, yeah, about Cloud Atlas, the Cloud Atlas movie. Um, so we, we kind of hear the Cloud Atlas sextet. What did you guys think about the music? Because I think there were some gr- really great musical moments in the movie. I really liked it. Yeah. And there were a lot of moments where they would use the same theme, but it would be like... Slightly altered. period for the time that yes. you were viewing. Yes. So like the... Louisa Ray theme. There was like this weird kind of electro, kind of like did 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 did. It was yes. So I thought that like the I felt like this Cloud Atlas sextet was was good for a movie soundtrack trying to do classical music. It was interesting, but if they're trying to set this in the 1930s, it makes no sense because it sounds very romantic and kind of like melody heavy and Lauren is a classical music nerd Uh, sorry Um, guys well I I mean I I felt like um, I liked it it remind it's had some parts that directly reminded me of the soundtrack to the draftsman's contract which has been my personal soundtrack for reading cloud Alice so I thought that was good Um, but it was I I thought it worked well as a as a soundtrack for the film as a movie soundtrack um, yeah yeah and there is that scene where uh where Halle Berry walks into the record store and Ben Wishaw is playing the like stoned clerk in the, like the record shop which was um, per- perfect yeah that was scene was actually like way better than than i imagined it in the novel um, also and, and it's actually playing the record's playing and i thought it like that sounded really good also Lauren i will remind you that this is the same time i mean yes like Schoenberg and Stravinsky were composing, but also Peter Grain. Oh, sorry, Percy Granger. Okay, so I guess like I guess it could fit within, especially since Frobisher is English and he's not like one of these Russian guys. Exactly. Doing, like, super crazy stuff. Exactly. That makes, that makes more sense. The two most prominent English composers we have of this time are Percy Granger, who's technically Australian, and Gustav Holst. That, Both of which know, are they're they're I, great composers, but neither Holst-esque one of them are very. In a way. Yeah. Right. No, I mean it does it does kind of fit into that Holstesque like planets type of, you know, grandiose um wow. melody driven. Yes. yes in yes, fact, yes. there might have been a musical wow. reference to the planets in there. I'm trying to think of there was a time <laughs> Okay. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, there, I really, really love Gustav Holst. There was a, a section in the film where there was a snatch of melody playing that was so familiar to me, and I couldn't place it, and it very well might be from the planets. I wouldn't be surprised. I was telling Sky that the Cloud Atlas sextet would could should just be the overture to Rusalka because it's basically the same kind of like... Oh, do you want to go see Rusalka next month? You heard it's not very good. <laughs> I saw, saw a review of it, and it was not supposed to be as good, and I saw Renee Fleming do it in 2014, and I'm like, I don't know that I want to. Okay, so now we've transferred to a fan, from a fantasy but, wishbone but cast you know to a New York maybe, opera cast. Maybe, maybe let's do it anyway. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap up as we always do with our favorite moments. So if anybody has any favorite moments from the movie we'd like to share, let's go ahead and get rid of those now. Um, I think... I think, as I was saying, uh, the mo- the fav- my favorite moment from the uh, movie was really the best part that came out of the San Mi story in the movie, and it was her declarations at the end, like the the whole um, "our lives are not our own, from womb to tomb we are bound to others, past and pre- present, and all that great stuff." I. For- thinks that like i don't know who brought this up but i my favorite moment in the movie is when the the scottish character in the timothy cavendish section is in the bar and is like and is like calling all of his compatriots to defend them up against the mr meeks mr meeks that's my favorite part in the movie i know oh actually i I take it back yeah, okay. I, t- I take it back. Okay, no, that is a great moment that I said earlier. But actually, no, my favorite moment is Jim Broadbent doing uh, Soylent Green as people. Never mind. <laughs> yes. I was amazed that they put that into the movie, but it was great. <laughs> and then well, there's that scene where Mr. Meeks is at, like, uh, Jim Broadbent is hiding out in Mr. Meeks's room. And Mr. Meeks says, like, please take me with you. Yeah. And and like Jim Broadbent just like mugs at the camera like this guy talked. It's, it's, that's also a good moment. Breaking the, for, the fourth for, wall. Yeah. For me, it's probably in Frobisher the storyline because if you remember, like the first letter we get from Frobisher, he talks about how he had that dream where he was in a china shop, but everything like when it fell rather than cracking, yeah. and breaking, it made like a tone. That scene is in the movie, but it doesn't like. One, we're not even told what it is. It's just, like, randomly there. And it's not Frobisher alone. It is Frobisher and Sixsmith together smashing stuff, just, like, while having fun. And the Cloud Atlas sextet is playing at the same time. And watching that without having read the book, it, like, makes no sense. But watching that now having read the book, like, I really liked it because it was this kind of... It was this moment, it was near the end of Frobisher's story where we knew he was going to kill himself, but... I think it kind of captured that manic joy that he was feeling, you know, like he had decided to kill himself, but he felt like this freedom and this happiness. And he still felt like ultimately like there had been these great moments and this great success in his life. And I, I felt like they used that bit from the book to to kind of symbolize the freedom that he felt and like that explosion of happiness. Yeah. And also his realization is say, I believe that we do not remain dead for long or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. What did you guys think of the beginning of the Cavendish story where Tom Hanks throws an editor over the balcony of, like, the in the middle of that, like, book premiere party? That's a great accent there, Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a little unnecessarily gruesome that they showed us the body splatting. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, 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 yeah. 
the 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 body splat was a bit gratuitous um but and honestly the thing that stuck out to me the most at that moment as i was watching it was tom hanks is just having fun which actually all the actors were just having fun with this movie let's face it with all of their ridiculous uh side characters but tom hanks had 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 a moment (laughs) well any um favorites from the past week anything you want to just give a quick shout out or recommendation for i'm good honestly uh this week's been a blur i'm just gonna go back and say like i've already talked about this before but i'm now like halfway through season three of gilmore girls and it has gotten so freaking good yeah for years i heard people talk about the show and i didn't understand why they liked it or like what it was about the show that could be good or compelling and now that i'm watching it i'm just like oh my god it's so good gilmore Ugh. girls was like a touchstone of my childhood and i haven't watched the new series because i'm afraid i'm just going to be disappointed um but if you like if you recommend it i might venture out and like rewatch the the original series just to watch the new okay one. so, so spoil spoiler alert but i just got to the episode where lorelei has all of the flashbacks to giving birth as a teenager whoa and you see like Emily's response to that as a mother mm-hmm. and you have this with like three seasons now of watching Emily grow to be more of a mm-hmm. nurturing caring being and I was like just sobbing during that episode and like sobbing at the growth but still the distance between Lorelai and Emily and yeah. then a few episodes after that is the one where Paris doesn't get into Harvard and Rory gets into Harvard, Yale and Princeton mm-hmm. and like that just made me totally break down start sobbing I do have a recommendation of something that I watched in the last I guess it's probably the last week or so I watched on Amazon there's this new series about Zelda Fitzgerald called Z the beginning of everything and I don't know like I it has its ups and downs but overall I think it's a really interesting period piece and I think it's kind of fun to look at one of these like great figures in literature from the perspective of his wife and see how fundamentally flawed they can appear and that's been fun Um, well I have a very silly recommendation Um, so I have a weekly anime night with a group of friends we all get together and watch a couple episodes of several different series that we're watching and there's so there's one that we just finished and it's one of my favorites and it's called haven't you heard i'm sakamoto and it is about this high school student named sakamoto and he's basically like great at everything and everybody loves him and it's like very unrealistic how great he is at everything and he has all these like random special powers that allow him to do silly things uh but it's also like it's it's just nice and good at heart. Uh, it's it's delightful, and you should watch it if you're so inclined. Oh. Uh, as we wrap this up, I just want to say, you know, thank you everyone for listening. I'm going to be taking a leave of absence for a while, and hopefully de-stressing because I'm very, very, very much overworking myself right now. Um, so thank you again for listening, everyone. I'm John, and thank you, Lauren, for... Uh, stepping in to host I w- this I w- next season. I will do my best to fill your very large and imposing shoes. <laughs> really, you just have to tell a couple of puns each episode, and we're solid. See, and that's like, like sing some songs. I- I'm gonna have to step up my pun game because I've never really been the uh, the best punster, but I but I will I will do my best. <laughs> uh, yes, and so starting next week, 
uh, listeners, we will be beginning the, the Handmaid's Tale mar- with uh, with myself and Sky and Lauren. All right. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening, and you'll see most of us uh, next episode when Inner Library Alone starts with Handmaid's Tale. So I've been John. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Just one last reminder for all those reading along at home. Next week we start The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. We'll be reading and discussing uh, sections 1, 2, and 3. That's Night, Shopping, and Night. And if you're reading the Anchor Paperback Edition, that takes you to page 41. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. Thank you.